Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today we're talking wine here, wine there, wine everywhere, even over Wi-Fi. Let's get started. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome to Friday, and welcome back to the Chef Demoni Podcast. I really appreciate you joining me here. And if you're new to Chef Demoni, welcome to the show. This podcast is about all things food, and today, all things wine. But more than that, the show is about people. It's about people and their stories, and my guest today really does have a great story. Before we get to the interview, though, uh, a quick follow-up on a snack-sized episode that I published recently, about a week and a half ago. That was called Some Resources, and my goal there was to give some resources both for finding fresh, healthy food in these very strange, very trying times, and also some resources that might help you to help the restaurants that we all know and love. I'll put a link in today's show notes to that snack-sized episode so that you'll be able to find it easily. Two other sources that you may wish to look at, and these are directed toward government action. These are independent restaurateurs, independent restaurant operators, coming together to speak in a united voice to government and to set out what they think is necessary to get through this pandemic and have restaurants come out the other side. So those are onetable.ca and savehospitality.ca. Each of them has an Instagram page that you can follow as well. And again, I will put links to their websites in today's show notes. So to the extent you can, please do support your local restaurants and your local food system. They are so important. And it's it's also important, to me at least, and I think probably to you too if you're listening to this podcast, that they be around when this whole COVID-19 episode passes. All right, on to happier topics now, to today's interview. My guest today is Tanya Tomaszewska of TT Wine Explorer. Now, Tanya is a former banking lawyer who made the brave, but also sensible, it seems to me, decision to leave the practice of law behind and to start her own wine consulting business. At the start of our talk today, you will hear us discussing a British Columbia rosé wine, and this is the Rethink Pink by Joie Farm. Tanya and I each had a glass of this to sip on as we proceeded with the interview, and it really was a pleasure to raise a glass with Tanya, even if only virtually for now. So beyond some tasting notes around the Rethink Pink and thoughts on what food we thought could go well with it, Tanya and I also delve into her two careers. We talk about her start in law in Vancouver, and then we talk about a transition she made to Australia. We talk a little about her legal practice there and also what she discovered and was exposed to in terms of wineries and wine production and wine culture. And geography is really important to Tanya. That's one of the things that stood out in our interview today. Wherever I've gone, I've always sought or enjoyed embracing the place through its wine. I believe vehicle, the wine is a vehicle to so many things. It's, it's just wine. I don't mean that just. It's fantastic. And I love just drinking wine and enjoying it. But it's a vehicle to so many things. And ultimately, I think that wine is about geography in the broadest sense. Physical geography, latitude and longitude, geology, what's under, what, what's under these vines, the human geography, who's making the wine, why, uh, climate, weather, all sorts of things. Having returned to Canada, Tanya tells me about the development of her 
wine consulting business. You'll hear about some of the services that she provides and some of the wine journeys of, of varying types that she likes to create for her clients. Tanya's also going to offer some tips today for demystifying wine, for ways that people who are new to wine can start to explore it. I think the starting point goes back to what I mentioned about wine being art. And I think like art, we know what we like. Often we know what we like right away. We might not know why, but we know what we like when we see it or we hear it. And Tanya goes on to share her thoughts on how those of us new to wine can approach it thoughtfully and learn to appreciate the layers it offers beyond simply the taste of it. Although Tanya and I agree that taste certainly is critical as well. I love that people like Tanya, so knowledgeable about wine, agree that it's A-OK just to drink what we like. And if you're looking to dive deeper beyond your initial reaction, Tanya's got some great advice for you there too. All right, that is all from me for now. We've got a great wine discussion ahead, so let's get right to it. Here's my talk with Tanya Tomaszewska. Tanya Tomaszewska, thank you so much for joining me remotely during these days of self-distancing social, no, no, what is it? Social distancing, self-isolation. In any event, Tanya, I am delighted to be speaking with you remotely. Thanks for being on Cheftimony. And I'm delighted to be here speaking with you virtually and remotely with some wine. Thank you. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, let's talk about that before we dive into further all things wine. But this is one that we picked yesterday, and I've just cracked the bottle of it here, the Rethink Pink by Joie. I'm going to ask you what you think of it, because I'm really enjoying it. But that's about the start and end of my analysis. <laughs> so what can you tell us about this? Well, one? I think your analysis is spot on. And one doesn't have to go further than that. I think essentially wine is wine, and it's there for us to experience and see how we feel we're experiencing that wine. I'm enjoying it as well. I haven't had the Rethink Pink from Joie Farm uh, in a little while now. And so I uh, was excited when you suggested that would be one perhaps we could try together. So I've just cracked it myself. And I'm really enjoying it. I think it's a lovely rosé, uh, what they aspire to be with these with their wines, their uh, European inspired wines that are meant to be enjoyed Pacific Northwest cuisine or mood. And I think it's crisp and nice acidity with the nice uh, red fruit coming through that you'd expect for kind of a French inspired Rosé, so thanks. I'm really enjoying it so far. <laughs> Terrific. Me too. And it's got me thinking about what I'm going to pull out of the fridge to cobble together a quick dinner with, but maybe we can revisit that. Well, yeah. no, let's 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 dive into that. Sorry, what would you put with it? Well, what I love about Rosé, and I love the name Rethink Pink as well, because yes. this ties in quite well with a revisiting of Rosé generally amongst consumers, I think, over the last couple of years. And one of the reasons why I believe is rosé is so versatile uh, and food friendly. The high acidity and crisp nature of it typically or the varying styles of fruit coming through. So what I like about rosé and what I like about this style of rosé is I think it's fantastic on its own. It's great as an aperitif or with charcuterie and grazing. Uh, and for meals, I think it can go with anything, but typically rosé is something that can go well with things that are spicy, sweet. So uh, I myself was thinking about tonight, I might take the night off cooking and support some local restaurants and get takeout. And near me, I have 
a modern street food Vietnamese place and some Thai. So something like this would be great with Asian, Pan-Asian cuisine, but equally salad, seafood, meats. Well, I'm kind of starting to go through all the food groups, but <laughs> all, all of it to say, I think it's quite versatile. What, what do you think? What, 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 what you pull out? Yeah, I, you know what? I tend to go with um, maybe, maybe simpler or just pairings that I've had well in the past. So I might go to a fattier, heavier, for lack of a better word, fish. Mm-hmm. Like I could yeah. see some sort of salmon um, going well with this. The acidity maybe uh, cut through something. To do something on the duck side, we've been having... We found a frozen duck supplier, so we've had been uh, enjoying some duck in quarantine recently. And so, yeah, those are the t- things I tend to think of immediately. Mm-hmm. But the, the Asian cuisine, it's interesting. I usually think more, to the extent I think about pairings, I think more uh, Gewurztraminer for some reason. With, yeah. Sp- yeah. with spicy and Asian foods. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Gewurztraminer and Riesling are two go-tos often for Asian foods. But again, I guess when I use Pan-Asian, that's very broad. It can be spicy or there can be a sweet aspect or umami um, or savory. So again, we think through these things, but certainly Gewurztraminer and Riesling are go-tos to cut through spice. And sticking within the Joie Farm line, for example, the Noble Blend, if you've had that, that's beautiful with spicy food. It can be a dessert wine, but I've also had it with spicy with spicy things and seafood. So I, I also think this rosé would be great with prawns, that kind of dish, kind of a Mediterranean, mm-hmm. sort of Mediterranean, Mediterranean style or a paella. Yeah. Oh, or a paella. Wouldn't that be mm-hmm. lovely? Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm probably an ingredient or two shy, but... Uh... <laughs> Later this summer. Well, listen, Tanya, before we dive further into wine, let's start on the legal end or the the lawyer working end of your work history, because like me, you share uh, experience in a couple of industries, the legal industry and the and the hospitality world. Tell us about tell us about your your start in law and what you did. My start in law was as a student at UBC here in British Columbia. I got my law degree there and I articled and got qualified here in BC and started my career as a solicitor in downtown Vancouver at a law firm called Lawson Lundell, where I stayed for my first two, three years of practice and working in, um, in doing solicitor's work in real estate and finance area. And then adventure, life adventure took me to Australia. So I grabbed an opportunity to head abroad and I went to Sydney And I started working with a firm there and continued to do solicitor's work and focused in banking and finance and did that for a number of years, actually more than a decade there, ultimately really specializing in debt restructures and debt workouts. So, yeah, (laughs) that's that's, so yeah, sounds like like I want a glass of wine already. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's in a nutshell in terms of where I started and and where it took me uh, or where life took me and where I went with the law on that. And when you when you say solicitors work for listeners who uh, who are not as uh, into the legal world as you and me, what's where? No, no, it's it's a it's a question. I'm glad we've got the opportunity to discuss it because I've always or virtually always done litigation the other half of the practice, I guess. Right, right. But how how do you define or view a solicitor? 
Well, I suppose uh, in colloquial terms, I'm trying to stay out of the courts. So really what I'm doing as a solicitor or in the world I was working in, in banking law, and typically I would act for banks or lenders or financiers, lending money or making credit available to borrowers, typically corporate, sometimes individuals. And so this was the business side of things, um, if you will, getting to yes. So people putting deals together in order to make different types of credit facilities and loans available for different types of businesses. So when I say solicitor, it meant that I was in my law office uh, working with my team and working with clients in order to uh, put together the framework for all of the documents needed in order to make these types of arrangements possible. It included setting out the game plan, so to speak, or uh, drawing out everything that's required, thinking through the structure, thinking through the terms, discussing it with your client on the phone or in emails or in meeting. Uh, discussing with all parties, negotiating the documents, and having a deal come to fruition. So when I talk about being a solicitor, it's generally putting doing the business law uh, in the office, a lot of reading, a lot of writing, a lot of document preparation. <laughs> a lot of black line. <laughs> a lot of black line so that people uh, could get the arrangements they needed for their businesses for different types of working capital or fi- different types of financing. So okay. Where, all right. where I spent my time. Fair enough. And it and it seems to me from my observation from the litigation floors um, is that maybe the trial, the equivalent to a trial for a solicitor is a closing. Is that fair enough? Where you have so many parties and endless people around a boardroom table and lots of people signing lots of documents. Absolutely. That's where you're leading up to whatever the arrangement is. Uh, so you could have, I suppose, um, things now increasingly are virtual. So ideally, people would get together in a room, stacks of documents. But with the advent of technology, and depending where the parties are, a lot of things could happen virtually as well. But typically, yes, the whole idea would be to have everything culminating in a closing, at what point all the documents are signed, and the handshakes become firm, and the arrangements start as up from that date. So it's something that people work very hard to. And when you have a closing, you're very relieved right when it's finished. <laughs> <laughs> and, and hopefully have a day or two off before prep off for the next then, one starts. And then go and have a glass of wine. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right. Well, yes. Now, here we are back on the on the sensible side of the <laughs> experience here, both in Vancouver and, and in Australia. How how did you find the, those two places? What differences did you observe between them? Maybe comment a little bit on, on the, the legal side, the work world, if anything stands out. But I'm also curious about wine culture and, and culture generally. Mm-hmm. Well, part of my observations probably are in terms of a point of time of when I first moved to Australia from Vancouver. And so that was quite some time ago now, close to 15 years ago. So things obviously will have shifted on both fronts. But I can say in terms of my move from Vancouver to Sydney, Sydney is a very, well, it's a large city, and it's one of the financial hubs in Asia Pacific. So in terms of market practice and the types of deals and arrangements that I was getting exposure to through work were things that I hadn't seen in Vancouver before. For different reasons, I was a junior or our market is different. We have we have different things going on in our market. So for me, that was something new. The financial market there 
it was very buoyant, very vibrant, lots of different types of products. I won't go into it in, in bank speak, but lots of activities. So for me, as a more junior lawyer going there, uh, it was quite an adventure to become part of different market transactions that I hadn't seen before. So that's from, I suppose, a legal perspective. In terms of the middle point between law and life, one, one thing I did notice in Australia compared to the time at which I was coming from a North American perspective, so perhaps Canadian or American, is what I found is in Australia at that time, the culture beyond law, I suppose any kind of work is really work to live and not live to work. So that was a bit of a shift for me as well. And that could have been the point of time that I went um, and what was happening in the markets and both continents. But that was something a little bit different that I was used to. It uh, wasn't particular to my firm here in Vancouver, just I would say generally the North American. You know, I think there was a lot of, at that time, live to work, uh, work to live. <laughs> or right. live to work, sorry, live to work. <laughs> oh, okay. So, yes. so that, I don't know if that makes sense, but that was something I noticed. So that, so in terms of what I went into, uh, and also... Um, things were very fast moving there in terms of deals and so and very uh, lots of things happening commercially. So I had to learn a lot quickly on the job about a new a new market. So that's maybe more about as a junior practitioner, uh, things different. And there's a lot more than that. But I'd say in terms of broad brush strokes, those are things that I noticed when I first went from the from a legal perspective or going as a junior lawyer. Okay. Um, Life outside the office? Well, it's really different. You know, I don't know if you've been to Australia, but <laughs> I, it's, it's I have. But even <laughs> even longer ago, I was there after my undergrad, so uh, well uh, well before the turn of the millennium. But yeah. but loved it. Yeah. So um, for me, it felt as though sometimes. Well, for a long time, it felt as though I was on a working holiday. Not to say that I wasn't working hard, because I felt I was working very hard indeed. But when I wasn't working, or I was coming home late at night. It was different for me to hear hear or hear palm trees, uh, you know, kind of in the wind or getting in right out of a beach and there to be warm air. So I guess as a climate point of view, or working right downtown and then going to quite a tropical area was is a is different as well. So that's that's a that's a difference feeling on a working holiday. But it was quite <laughs> there's a lot to do. So um I wasn't sitting under palm trees all the time, but um but that was different as well. And from that too, though, the approach, the lifestyle, because of the climate there, you'd have people, I'd be in the office and getting in there, let's say at seven or eight, and people would come in and they would have gone for a surf that morning. You know, they went for a surf for an hour and came to work and then they leave work and they go to surf. So I suppose in Vancouver, for example, people go skiing after work. We're very fortunate mm-hmm. that we have that proximity or they go sailing. But going surf, hearing people going, coming and telling me how their surf was is very different. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. So, and in terms of wine, well, I suppose uh, culturally in Australia, what I found is wine and, and other beverages uh, was quite a big part of social social functions, both inside and outside of the office. And there is certainly a, a large wine culture there. There's a big beer culture too, and, and other beverages like we have in Canada. But certainly uh, the wine, the, the level of or the volume of wine production in Australia is, is huge. And, and until you go there, you might not have a, a sense of that. Uh, we don't see nearly the amount of wine that's produced in Australia here in Canada. And the culinary adventure and travel around wine and food there 
is quite diverse and it's really supported. And so when I went, that was something that I saw that would come into Sydney or even if we were entertaining clients or having internal team building events, often, um, you know, or outings, often food or wine adventure would become part of that structure in, in, a, in a good way, in a good way. So um, that was different for me too. I think a lot of it's just the scale. Uh, so that was a little bit different. It, is that because wine production is older there or or bigger there or or both, do you think? Or, or is there something else driving that? I think it's both. I guess it depends on the region. So taking a step back, places like the Barossa Valley or parts of Victoria, um, the state of Victoria, have the oldest vines, for example, the oldest Shiraz vines in the world, as far as we're aware, um, some of them are in Australia, and same with the Marsan. Settlers went to the Barossa in the 1850s and from Germany and Silesia, and they started they started wine production. And I and I know that we have the Okanagan, for example, uh, you know, goes goes back that far to Father Pandozi planting grapes. But so the history, the length is there. But I think it's also the number of acres under vine as an example. It's it's much, much higher than what we would have in Canada. I'd have to get the numbers in front of me, but it could be, you know, three or four hundred thousand acres. <laughs> wow. I need to double yeah. check. I need to fact check myself there. But but uh, the volume, the volume of acres under vine and the production levels. So it's at that point, it is the numbers. And also, there are more regions producing wine in Australia. There. Are- mm-hmm. Okay, I was gonna, I was just going to ask: Is that in some measure a function of geography and climate? In in other words, we do have some wonderful wine growing regions here in Canada, but mm-hmm. we've also got a lot of tundra, yeah. and maybe Australia has a little more producible landmass. I believe so. People might often think that, oh, Australia is all a desert and much of it is like we have a lot of tundra. Australia has a lot of outback. But within the dry, arid conditions, there are also cool climate regions. And people are often surprised when I talk to them about beautiful Rieslings and Chardonnay and Pinot Noirs that you can get from Australia from cool climate regions. So yes, I believe there are pockets, probably more pockets there that can produce more more wine essentially for climactic reasons i mean their their issues are more to do with water and drought um okay sure yeah i guess every region is going to have its challenges Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and can you tell us tanya about the shift or because now uh let, let me preface this for the listeners now you're not working as a practicing lawyer you're instead working in i would call it the hospitality industry and the wine industry Tell us a bit about the, you know, how wine rose in prominence in your life and and in your career. And was Australia instrumental in that? Yes. Australia was probably the linchpin in it. I've always loved uh, wine and travel and food, but wine and travel. It's been a big part of my adult life. And wherever I've gone, I've always sought or enjoyed embracing the place through its wine. I believe vehicle the wine is a vehicle to so many things. It's it's just wine. I don't mean that just. It's fantastic. And I love just drinking wine and enjoying it. But it's a vehicle to so many things. And ultimately, I think that wine is about geography in the broadest sense. Physical geography, latitude and longitude, geology, what's under what, what's under these vines, the human geography, who's making the wine, why, 
uh, climate, weather, all sorts of things. And geography has always been something I'm really interested in. And it's something that's really propelled me in travel. I've, I've loved to travel. I just love traveling anywhere I can go. That's new. And so whenever I've gone somewhere that has wine, I'll taste it. <laughs> that's <laughs> sure. always been a part of when I'm not slogging it out in the office, you know, where can I go, you know, for those couple of days that I get or that week that I get, where can I go? And when I'm there, hey, is there any wine? Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> I like to, that approach. Yeah. And when I think back to when I've been to Peru and Bolivia, you know, there was wine, <laughs> albeit it was early days of their industry, but I tried it. That was a long time ago. And sure enough, they're making more wine now. You just never know where wine will pop up. It's the passion that takes over. And I believe it's that the passion and pursuit in wine making and the stories around wine that kept propelling me to learn more about it. And so it was always something of interest. And certainly when I lived in Australia as part of day-to-day life, I had the chance to taste lots of different wine from all over Australia and over conversations with friends and colleagues and really going on that armchair wine travel. And then I was fortunate to go out to the wine regions and, and be, be in the place. And also as a senior practitioner member of our team, my, our legal team, some of the time we would have internal retreats or client appreciation events or what have you. And we would have wine tastings uh, and wine experts would come in to lead our discussion and, and our education. And that's when the penny dropped in terms of the linchpin and thought of, well, maybe this is something, maybe this is something I can do. Maybe I can fuse the legal with the wine part and carve my own course and take people on the journey through wine. Maybe instead of taking them on the journey through the bank documents. Through the <laughs> bank documents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it was, a, I, I wouldn't say there was an, a, there was a, an epiphany, but probably just a slow build of knowing there are these other undercurrents of things that I had a lot of interest in. And, uh, I came back to British Columbia. Uh, there was a lot of transition and change in my life. And I just thought if you're going to make a change, it's when there's lots of other change going on and some chaos. And so I found, so that's what did it. Just said, well, now's my time. Why don't I try and start my new, start a consultancy and 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 brought in my expertise to uh, include wine in addition to some banking, banking transactions. <laughs> some, some banking, some banking know-how. <laughs> I love it. That's well, it's general. so that's very general, but yeah. uh, that, in very general terms, I suppose what precipitated making the shift from. I guess a, a trusted legal advisor to now I hope a trusted wine advisor to a trusted yeah absolutely and you know what I love hearing that story because it resonates with me because I think back to uh, client development work that we did taking clients out for dinner or taking them to events particularly where there would be perhaps tasting stations and chefs serving food and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in private practice, I, I love my clients and, and uh, my teammates and, and doing that work. I, I did actually thoroughly enjoy it. But I think in the back of my head, I was always thinking, it might be kind of neat to be on the other side of that food station. Mm-hmm. And then when I did try it, I thought... Well, this is way more fun um, preparing the food, I think, than in some, for me anyway, in some ways, then it's more fun to be on the the prep working side than to be on the consumption guest side. Um, so you, you must have seen something similar in, you know, the wine experts that you were dealing with within your legal practice. I feel that's the case. And there are a couple I still think of right now, and I follow them, what they're doing in Australia. And they were very inspiring. And the inspiration for me was 
being in a room uh, with colleagues and clients and being in, for example, a cocktail mixer stand-up scenario, but having an expert guide us through a flight of wines in a very knowledgeable but approachable way and in a storytelling way. And I often think back to a few people in particular who were those, what I call for me now, a wine journey leader. And I think often on that, in order to perhaps model some of my style, or perhaps some of my style has come from that because it really resonated with me, or maybe I had a similar, I thought I had a similar style and it would be something that I could feel that was authentic to me in terms of how I want to, or would like to communicate with people about going on a wine journey. So absolutely, absolutely. And I think I, I probably at the time I wasn't, the dots weren't connecting the way they are now, but certainly in hindsight, I think we do look back and we think about, well, what were those turning points and who was it or what was it that inspired us to, to take a new direction or when we are changing our paths and forming a new identity or reincarnation, you know, where, what are we drawing on? And certainly I think that's a, that's a huge part of it. And what have we seen? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, listen, before we get further into your now, your current business, TT Wine Explorer and, and the shift from trusted legal advisor to trusted wine advisor, I love that. <laughs> I love that idea. L- let me ask you, Tanya, do you feel, and you're still a, um, you're still a member of the Law Society of British Columbia, non-practicing, but so lawyer is still within your identity. But do you miss anything or have you noticed any shifts or changes in making that change away from the practicing lawyer identity? And and to put some um, specificity on that question, I find it much easier now that I've returned to the practice of law to answer the question, what do you do? When I had my couple of years off and was sort of uh, freelance cooking, uh, even though I was having a whole lot of fun, I didn't have the easy answer of, oh, I'm a lawyer. I do this, that, or the other. So I wonder if you've had any similar thoughts or, or experiences. Absolutely. I think back over the last couple of years, two to three years, and see it in stages. I have the benefit now of having a little bit of time behind me. And certainly like you, when I initially stopped practicing and jumped off that particular road to pursue formal wine studies and develop an expertise or greater expertise in wine, I wasn't sure what I was either. You know, I get asked, I was used to traveling a lot and I always had the answer when I went through passport control, what do you do? What do I do? Um, I'm aware, but I'm not practicing. But does the custom agent really want to hear my life story? So what am I? And I didn't know what I was. I I, I knew what I wasn't, but I didn't know what I was. So certainly I had some sort of identity crisis because I wasn't sure how to explain what I was doing. I worked through that. And then I I started to work through that and, and put some words around what, what, what it was I was doing. And I felt after I had done certain steps in building and adding to my expertise, so formal one studies like the WSET training, I went to the Okanagan and immersed myself and re-immersed ourself, myself in our region to bone up on my expertise there. I started to do more consulting work with within my network in Vancouver. And so as I started to do those things, I started to feel more of, well, I think I know where I'm going, but what what is that still? Wine consultant still seems very broad. So certainly there's been a narrowing to what I've come to now after some thinking and actually just doing, which is I do wine, I focus or I specialize in wine journey design, which can manifest itself in many ways. 
But before I got to that point, and after the what am I or who am I existential crisis, (laughs) I think I had a bit of a crisis of imposter syndrome. Like, what do you mean I can say it? Like, I'm I'm an expert in wine. Can I say that? (laughs) Can I say that? Because people usually see me as a lawyer. And what does it mean to be an expert? And because I'm a lawyer, maybe I overthink it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Down too deep to the definition. So there is a little bit of imposter syndrome. And I think we all have it. I think people get imposter syndrome. I don't think that would be unique to me or to lawyers or to people who've transitioned. And I think people can have it daily. But certainly those seem to be the stages. And I'm not saying I'm out of those. But uh, I agree with you that there was a time when I didn't know what I was. I think I know what I am now. (laughs) Yeah, for the moment. moment, But you know, we need to adapt. And certainly in our present circumstances, these tumultuous and I, the word I'm using now is tectonic times, you know, Mm, what are we doing? Things get thrown thrown at us. And we need to adapt. And we need to figure out how to navigate what are uh, very almost unreal circumstances. So Yes. Yeah. Are they ever on the, on the imposter syndrome front? I think you're right. I think most of us do experience it. I think, I think people who set high expectations for themselves may suffer from it more. And I, and I say that because a few of my friends who I think of as incredibly capable worry sometimes and have this imposter syndrome feeling. So I don't think you're alone at all. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, and I don't think this is unique to lawyers, but perhaps one of the ironic or perverse aspect of being a lawyer is sometimes we we think consciously or not that we, we might not be able to do other things or we can't be experts in other things. We have our expertise and that's what we're, that's what we've been working on. That's what we've trained so hard. We, we aspire to, that's how we're considered. And wow, if you don't do that, what are can you really, you know, what will it take to become an expert in something else and what's involved with that in very general terms? Yeah, I think I think people who have left law do deserve a lot of credit in many circumstances because it is a comfortable, you know, as challenging as the career can be, it's comfortable in that way, right? In that it's a fairly easy answer to that question. What do you do? Well, I do this. And then usually the conversation moves on. Whereas for other pursuits in life, it doesn't. And we feel ourselves talking more, explaining more. Absolutely. Can you tell us then what, <laughs> give us give us a sense before we transition into what might be coming. And goodness mm-hmm. knows, I love your use of the word tectonic. That feels right for these times. Uh, I think virtually every industry is rethinking what might be next or what is possible. But but tell us what TT Wine Explorer is now. Tell us what you're doing with your clients, us- well, until, say, two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. When people ask me what I do, right now I respond by saying I focus on wine journey design. And that might unfold in a few different ways. So... For example, we could meet with clients, uh, host and design. I might design and lead small private group wine tastings in corporate boardrooms or with clients who are hosting their clients or private dinner parties in homes where I coordinate with a chef to design and deliver an integrative experience or cocktail or happy hour style stand up. Uh, wine tastings with grazing boards. And in that, in all of those cases, it's tailor-made, the experience is tailor-made for 
the client that I work with and what they would like to take their guests on. And so it's quite bespoke. Sometimes a client will just say, can you just give us some ideas on a journey? And we'll, whatever wine you think would be great. Sometimes they'll say, well, you know, we're having some people over and we know they really like Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. So can we do something around those grapes? Maybe we can go around the world through three or four regions, or we can focus on one country. So it's very uh, tailor-made for the clients. And when I say journey, there's usually, there's a theme, there's always a theme and there's a flow. And so all of the wines I'll select or curate in collaboration with the client. And if there's food involved, it'll be paired so that guests, wherever their experience, I'll call in-city tastings, whether it's in a home or, or a boardroom or somewhere else, or perhaps a wine bar or a, a restaurant with a private booking, the guests come and they have an experience, an integrated experience. And I lead a tasting and it can be as detailed and as cork dork as we'd like to go or as as uh or as as simple as possible in terms of the amount of words used to describe the wine so that again is very tailor-made for the client and the guest so i do i do things like that i also help people buy wine um in terms of if they would like to buy some wine for their sellers and so i'll speak to them about what they're looking to do if they want to have drink nows if they want to get something to hold in their cellar cellar management some people have a lot of stuff in their cellar and they're not keeping track or organizing inventory, uh, keeping a list. So I help people organize their cellars. So that's why there, like there's all. a problem of, of, of the many problems I have. Cellar organization is not one of them because the, uh, <laughs> well, not the, ha- the half to. case, yeah, the half case yeah. of wine under the kitchen sink no, sort of organizes. Yeah. It, so. No, absolutely. So that won't be, that won't be for everyone, but there are some people who uh, oh, for have sure. wine or who, <laughs> are given wine or, or win wine or, yeah. and they just, or keeping it organized and thinking about what they'd like is not their, you know, there are only so many hours in a day and that's part of the hour that they might not be able to spend. So yeah, um, no, so that's nice. a little bit of my work, but I would say a lot of it is the, is the tasting work and helping people acquire really for kind of the drink now, you know, Oh, you know, I'd like to get some things for the next, for the summer. Let's, let's go and wine shop. Great. Let's go wine shop. Let's um, go. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't fun. sound so bad. Um, so tastings like that, but then, so that's what I call my in city work. And then, okay. um, outside excursion work. So I lead design uh, small group private charter tours or day excursions in the Okanagan or to the Okanagan, depending on how the client wishes to travel and how they wish to go. If they're there, I can meet them there and we can put together an itinerary. And a day uh, like that would look like, for example, maybe going to three wineries with in-depth visits with either an owner or a proprietor, owner, founder, proprietor, winemaker, someone integral to the business. Um, so you have the opportunity to really deep dive into the story at that winery and usually a lunch is involved. But again, that can be completely tailor-made for the client, but usually it's small group and private charter and designed, the day is designed for the client. So I do that in the Okanagan Valley to the Okanagan Valley. And as well, I have been doing some work in our wine islands region, which wow. is Vancouver Island and Gulf Islands, where there's some really exciting coastal wine stuff going on there. I'm really excited about that region as well. And I do a little bit to the Fraser Valley too, um, which is a, you know, people forget people who are in Vancouver, uh, you know, within an hour drive from downtown Vancouver, we have our own vines in our backyard. 
So that's another area on people's radar for a shorter trip who might only be able to get out for five hours on a Saturday or Sunday and and want to go and taste some wine. So those are the kinds of excursions I'm doing right now. Okay. They sound Mm -hmm. wonderful. And they really, it sounds to me that they're following the same theme, uh, journey design. So you can take a journey and, and that sounds exactly what you're doing for your clients. Even if you're sitting around somebody's kitchen island and you've got some charcuterie, you're doing a journey through varietals or through regions or through both. Absolutely. I think generally speaking, people connect with wine through story and each other. So getting back to my legal days, I really enjoyed being in a team, either with my colleagues and also my clients and any other parties involved in transactions. And we get back, you asked me about closing and I said a glass of wine after. I, re- I wasn't joking. Um, you know, sure. you I believe you. And you clink glasses or you have a lunch or you have a closing dinner. And, and it's that celebration of a journey together. And you've had a shared experience and that wine is a vehicle. It might just taste great and that's it. Or you might you might really sit and wonder, wow, where is this wine taking me? And how did it get in this glass? And there's something for everyone. I've done tastings with people who can't drink wine for different reasons, but they'll listen to the tasting or they'll come on the trip and they'll smell the wine and they they want to hear about it because it's not just it's not just about the liquid in the glass, it's all the steps that it took to get into that glass. And it's also the story of the people behind it. Like what I mentioned earlier, the passion and pursuit or it's nature. So gardeners love it. It's science, it's chemistry, yes. it's, yeah. it, yeah. it's equipment. It's what, wow, are they tanks or barrels or, you know, and it's, um, sure. and it's in many lot. ways, I think it's, it's, art. It's, it's, it's art. It's art. Yeah. It's, art. it's economic and it's also surprise and it's also accident. So until you yes. the owners of the, you know, sometimes you're from a winemaker say, listen, that wine you really loving was a complete accident. We didn't plan that. And <laughs> we didn't know that <laughs> we didn't plan it, but for these reasons, it worked out really well. And yeah. it's great when people are who share that with you because it's, that's the element of surprise. And I think that's why people keep going back to wine because it will never duplicate. Yes. You're always going to have something hopefully of the season, right? Yeah. And of that producer and yeah, and maybe an accident that they may or may, have, may or may not be able to replicate. Yeah, or when I say when it won't duplicate, it means also your 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 experience may not won't duplicate. So I can't think of the number of times I've gone to certain wineries, but always with different guests. And the experience each time is different because you're sharing that with a different person who's experiencing that wine or the winery in a different way than the next person. And for me, I love that. I'll, I'll never get tired of going back to wineries because each time I go is a completely different experience. And even tasting, even if I have the same wine a couple of weeks apart, let's say, or a couple of days apart, how I'm experiencing that wine could be quite different for different reasons. Sure. It depends what you're bringing to the table. Yeah. I've often thought that what I want my dinner guests, people who come over when I'm cooking, is to go and run sort of a 10K trail run and then show up for dinner because... <laughs> Isn't it, isn't it the case, you know, like some of the best food you've ever had in your life is at the top peak on a hike yeah. up at Whistler, right? Yeah. And it's not because it's the best food you've ever had. You're just hungry yeah. and you're having an amazing experience Absolutely. in nature with friends, whatever it happens to be. Is that part of the real attraction to wine, the layers of experience that you can have with it? And to add to that question, 
For those of us, uh, I certainly enjoy wine. I'm very, very far from being an expert. But I think a lot of people find wine intimidating. I've now gotten over that and I just outsource my wine knowledge to people like you, to friends who know the stuff. Um, So let me try to wrap all of that up into a question or two. Wine offers layered experiences and how can newbies sort of dip their toes into it and discover what else might be out there to discover and enjoy about wine? Yeah, I, I think the starting point goes back to what I mentioned about wine being art. And I think like art, we know what we like. Often we know what we like right away. We might not know why, but we know what we like when we see it or we hear it. My suggestion to people when I'm working with them or we're going on a wine exploration together is the starting point is just experience that wine and think on a gut level first, your first reaction. How, how is it resonating with you? Do you like it? If it isn't resonating, why do you think that is? And then you start peeling back the layers of the onion because there are so many layers and you could go on and on and on. But my first starting point with people is consider it like art. I don't think there are any wrong turns. Never feel apologetic for a kind of wine that you like or you don't like. It's your choice and it's your experience. So I always say, or what I recommend is get outside of your comfort zone. I often will brown bag my tasting so people don't know what they're getting so that they don't have any preconceived notion about where the wine is from or how much it is. I just pour it and I, and I suggest that they close their eyes and smell it and they taste it and they see where it takes them. So I feel that that first level experience is really important and to have it. And even it just means, oh, I like the wine. Great. You don't need to go any further than that. But then we can peel, start peeling back the layers and we can start thinking about, well, why, why did I react that way? Why do I think I like this? And it could be a sensory experience. You like certain styles it could be a memory. There's a lot of memory involved with wine tasting and connection. So if you think about if you walk by something and you smell a scent and it takes you back to a place, wine is like that as well. It also helps connect the dots of wines you've had before. There's that whole, is it a sensory, is it memory, or is it like another wine you've had before that you like? So I know I'm taking a long time to answer your question, but I think you can take it in stages. So, um, and then there's a ways to approach the wine to start thinking about and getting into deeper analysis and thinking about, okay, well, I like this kind of rosé. So what other kinds of rosés should I try? So maybe that's your starting point, the starting point to your next question, which is how do you dip your toe in? I think there are different ways to do it. One way might be, Maybe there are a couple of styles of wine you don't you you like. You're not sure why you like it, and you're not pay, you haven't paid that much attention, or it hasn't been something that you've pursued to learn about why you might like it. So make a note or take a picture of a label, and maybe start tasting around that type of wine. So if you find a kind of rosé you like or a white wine, figure out the region, figure out the grape, go to your local wine store or or a wine advisor, and say, hey, I like. Wine. What else? What else can I try around it? I like this style, and I want to kind of explore around that, and maybe broaden it to maybe it's the region I like, maybe it's that those grapes I like. What what else can I try? So that's one way of starting. Or you could also go another way, which is well, maybe I want to start learning from a bit of the beginning or the middle of the beginning. So let's just say countries like France, Italy, and Spain, which although that's not where winemaking started, the modern era, and certainly those are the largest wine producers, and a lot of what we would call the main classic grapes and Germany would come from those countries. So maybe you go and you start trying 
a bit of wine from each of those historically large producers to see when people are talking about old world wines in quotation, what does that really mean? So maybe that's your starting point, choosing a different country, or, or maybe it's going to what we call the new world. And that might be, well, I'll come back to British Columbia in a minute, but you know, United States, Australia, New Zealand, um, South America, maybe you want to go to a different region. So I know this is very general, but I do, I do feel that depending on the person, they might have a way that they lean that they're interested in going and you just start from there and you just build, I think it's building on knowledge. I think it's experience, tasting, always be tasting. <laughs> I'm not always, from, be, I'm not okay. always be closing to always be tasting. <laughs> yeah. Always be tasting. <laughs> well, this is very sensible advice. Uh, and then I would say BC. For, uh, for right now and our current circumstances for our listeners who are in British Columbia, exploring our backyard is there's it's always there we have a lot going on in our backyard and certainly within our own backyard we have a huge diversity of types of grapes that we're growing types of wines that we're making and certainly in the current circumstances you know supporting our local industry i think a lot of people are interested in doing that so you know it might just be you start in our backyard um if you if you're if you're a novice if you're a beginner wine taster right i love that advice do you find tanya and i, I i'm gonna bet that you do because the advice you've given is experiential, which I think is fantastic advice, as opposed to, and not that there's anything wrong with book learning, I suppose is the other way to put it. One can read articles or magazines or endless online resources. But I think a huge part of the joy of wine has to be the human connection that comes with it, right? So if you find a style that you like, then ask somebody in the liquor store, hey, I like this one. What what else do you recommend? And have, have you found that through your through your wine experiences? I, I often think about food this way, although I've tasted a lot of delicious food in my life through these experiences. What really stands out are the stories of human connection that happened alongside them. Absolutely. And like I said, memories. So the memory could be if you went to a winery and you purchase some wine and you hold on to some and then you open that bottle and you have it again, you'll be transported back to that day. So depending on your experience at that winery, you might, it will, you know, you may just experience that wine the same way or a different way. It, that's the experience can really affect how you experience a wine. Your experience in a place can really affect your experience of a wine. So certainly experiential there. So, you know, like you said, getting back to, you know, your best meal, uh, it could be, you know, you had a you had a glass of a rosé somewhere at some point, and the the circumstances were such you thought it was the best rosé you'd ever had in your life, and then you open it again a week later, and you're like, okay, well, it's great, but it's not my favorite. But it conversely, right. <laughs> so that's you know, I, and I and I think it has to be said that you know, experience beyond or around that glass can also affect uh, how we taste a wine, and it gets to your point about connectivity and people and this takes me to a point about what's happening now in our world and virtual wine tastings. You know, what does that yeah. mean? What does that mean for how we connect? Yeah. Because I, I believe clinking of glasses, literally clinking glasses and looking each other in the eye and raising a glass and having that shared experience of, of the wine is a huge part of it. Absolutely. So yes, I think experience of wine, but having said that, I spent a lot of time reading about wine, sure, studying yeah. wine, and there is no end to resources out there. So oh, goodness, and yes. I'm glad you raised that point. In addition to experiencing the wine and, and whether mentally making a note 
or jotting down some notes or taking at minimum a snapshot of the the label to remember what you liked, or you can use new you know apps out there like Vivino or other things that will give you log and give you some more information. Certainly, but you know there's so there's so much information out there to learn about wine if you're interested to read and in different styles and formats. So I do a lot of that. I'm constantly trying to keep up to date. I mean, it's endless and we can never know everything. Of but course. I, a good portion of each of my days is, is, is reading and studying and keeping up to date with certain things. Yeah. For sure. Well, isn't it great the access that we have? And, and I think back to an interview I did with Kelsey Jones from Shambar mm-hmm. and she was saying, notwithstanding that I don't think she's yet hit 30, she's the wine director yeah. at this big restaurant. And I was asking her basically how, is that possible? Yeah. How do you how do you know as much as you do now? And uh, should yeah, the internet, yeah. right? Like it's just fundamentally changed how mm-hmm. we how we learn mm-hmm. and what we can absolutely. learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially for things like researching what's in a wine or vintage or what's going on. Yeah. Your information's at your fingertips for sure. Yeah. Now, how do you think that is going to impact or, or connectivity, digital connectivity generally is going to impact uh, potentially your business? Let's, let's take it. Uh, wine exploration, journey explorations. Given that we are in the midst of a pandemic, which we are, what are or have you had some thoughts? What do you think could work in terms of digital offerings? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've seen in the last couple of weeks, other businesses involved in the wine industry, certainly ramping up digital or virtual experiences, depending on the player in the market. Virtual wine tastings, for example, I think that'll become more and more in terms of winemakers or hosts and tasting rooms. Tasting rooms aren't open right now. So I've seen a number of Californian winemakers say, well, we're sending out your shipment, your pack, and we're going to do a virtual tasting or we're going to have a video clip that we'll send to you so we can taste it together. And that's happening here in British Columbia as well. But I've seen that that's happening in a lot in wine regions and people are doing it quite quickly. And part of that I think is because people realize that consumers or wine club members or tasters, that's part of it. They want to hear from the community. So certainly that is happening more and more. I know from my perspective, a lot of what I do and what I discussed earlier in our conversation has stopped. I can't right now, I can't do in-person tastings anywhere. You know, no one's having dinner parties. No one's having meeting in their boardroom. Um, no one is going nope. to wine country right now. So, so that in-person analog is not, I'm not able to do that right now. So what that's meant for me is taking this time to further develop other aspects that I had in development that I've been using to less, less extent, not because I'm not interested, but because there's only so many hours. In the only day. so many hours. Yep. <laughs> um, but certainly yep. the di- digital and virtual offerings. So stay tuned. I have a few things I'm developing right now, which are will involve more of a digital platform, but all still around the idea of taking you on a journey. But in really practical terms, socially, which I think will often for me is becomes professional because they're often intertwined is um, I can't tell you the number of zoom room wine tastings I've done and <laughs> in the last two weeks. Like I thought my wine, yes. I thought my wine tasting consumption would go down in the last two weeks. No. <laughs> and what I'm finding is people, whether, however they are friends or contacts or clients, when we, whereas we would have had just a telephone conversation before people are like, let's FaceTime, let's Zoom. 
and to use those yes. words as verbs now. Um, yes. And, yep. <laughs> which the English major in me is I'm struggling with, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, let's Zoom. And so I have a Zoom room, a wine Zoom room, and we get together and it might, and we clink glasses. That's the closest we're going to get to that connectivity. And it works now. People pretty well we're doing it and so what i've done is um i've had some of my friends ask me to you know put some structure around it and so we make a wine hour and in fact that's you know friends and family but right now i'm starting to organize some sessions for leading wine tastings in a wine education sense um, that i've been asked to do so that's an example coming out of the chaos of something that certainly I could have been doing more of up to this point, but that's the demand. You know, no one, mm-hmm. people, people are with the computer and they still, they're drinking wine and they want to still get the other components of it. So Absolutely. I think, me, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. that the virtual tasting space certainly is something that I expect I'm going to increase in terms of what I'm, how I'm delivering the wine journey. And right now it's out of necessity, and but I I imagine it will stay. It will stay as one of the spokes of my wheel for sure. I I think so. I was just thinking this may be the ultimate example of it's five o'clock somewhere. Oh well, yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. (laughs) My biggest issue is I've got friends in England and you know New York (laughs) and Australia, and you know someone's going to be day drinking essentially. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Somebody's got to take it for the team. Um, so yes, yeah, so certainly that, and then a few other, I've also been doing more writing, um, started to do some wine writing as well for some publications. And I also have some things in the works where I'm going to be writing. I'm going to get more into article writing and blog writing for wine travel and wine platforms. And that again was something that I've been doing not as much as I would have liked, because again, there's so many hours in the day, but that's something I've been ramping up and something I really enjoy. And again, it's, I feel it's part of the integrated experience of what it is I like to do. And I think what people are interested in. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, listen, Tanya, I don't want to take too, too much more of your time, but I do want some some more tips from you. So for me and other listeners, let's just talk about more, I guess, basic wine questions. What are what are some of your favorites in terms of regions? And and let's focus this on value because I'm, I'm sure we could go on for um, forever about great wine producing regions. But are there any that stand out to you right now for offering particularly good value? I find that question really hard, and it's probably because I'm a lawyer and I'm overthinking it. <laughs> um, Cheap wine that tastes good. <laughs> relative, yeah. So. Yeah. I would say some areas that I I need to explore more of for me that have great value is, as an example, would be some of the South American countries like Chile and Argentina. They're, the, the wine industries there are really booming and they're doing some fantastic and really innovative stuff. And I feel that there are still some great deals to be had. I feel there are great deals to be had in all regions, it might just sometimes take a little bit more digging, but um, there are. So for something a little bit different, I think that the, going back to those main producers or traditionally the largest producers, France and Italy and Spain and Portugal also have some great value and for different reasons. You know, they've been doing this for a long time and they've got economies of scale and, and for a lot of things. So I know it's really general, 
But I think if people are going into the, you know, the liquor store, the wine store um, outside of our province, because I think we've got some value in British Columbia as well. But I kind of got the sense that maybe we're talking about if we want to go a little bit further afield as a starting point for people who are just starting. I think those would be my suggestions in terms of broad regions and just see, you know, maybe go into a wine store and and say to someone, hey, say to the to the wine consultants there, this is kind of what I like. What do you what do you think I should try from this country? I mean, I know it's very general, but I think as a starting point, start with the basics with the old world producers and then maybe a little bit of the new world. Okay. Yeah. No, I love it. And I've had some discussions recently where I just asked, well, one, because we wanted to lay in a case of wine for, you know, the next week or two or whatever it's going to (laughs) be. And um, so, and and the wine supplies were getting low. And so I just, uh, I just chatted with the fellow who happened to be working Mm -hmm. And this is what I love about, again, the human connectivity. The people who are in hospitality are usually there for a reason beyond just, you know, a a job to fill the time. And this was a young guy and and he took some time and and pulled out. I gave him some parameters. I said, uh, I want some, I want some, uh, I want a case of red and I want a case Mm -hmm. of white. And this is kind of the budget, which was a pretty uh, humble budget. And and we had a great 10 minutes sort of exploring options and he came up with some recommendations. I think that's the best thing. And what we were chatting about earlier and what you've just mentioned is to find that value. If you have a few wines that you know you've enjoyed and you have a record of them, I think these days the easiest thing is just take a picture of the label and take a picture so it's clear of the name of the winery and the region and the year and take those in and go to the wine consultants in your in your local shop and give the budget. And I really think that's your best starting point. I agree. That's what I would do. And that's what I, that's what I do when I go and see. When I want to explore a region that I'm not feeling, I'm feeling I need some more experience in it or I'm not up to date, I'll do that. I'll go in and I'll, and I'll, or I'll speak with some fellow wine types, wine professionals, yep. and they'll say, here in this budget range, what do you think? You know, give me some ideas. So that doesn't stop. And I don't think it should. Um, so I totally agree. I think speak to someone who, makes it their day and it's their passion and they're completely, and they'll, and they'll have some ideas for you. And it may not guarantee you're going to love every single bottle, but you're, you're, we're here for the ride, right? We're here. And that's right. the other right. suggestion. Yeah. Just keep tasting and keep, don't you know, keep yeah. exploring. And there'll be wines that you have that you, that you aren't your favorites, but you know, just remember what those are. <laughs> don't go back. Yeah, right. <laughs> you take a picture of those too. Yeah, take a picture of those and say, don't want something like that. <laughs> right. Keep them in a different photo that's album. That's helpful yeah. as well. I always ask, you know, yeah. I always ask clients for feedback of what, what worked well for them and what ones, you know, what ones didn't they, what, what worked for them and why, and, and I do remember it. It's almost as though I do have a mental and a physical notes of different clients and what their preferred flavor profiles are. So because the idea is, is the experience is it's not just one time, you know, ideally, and hopefully I go on many journeys with, with clients. It's not just once. And I take that into account. So I find when I go to some of my local wine stores, the people I work with there, they, they know what I like too, or what I'm into exploring. And so they remember that and they'll say, Oh, Tanya, we just got this wine in. You, you would probably like this. Why don't you give it a whirl? And what's better than that? 
for a suggestion. Absolutely. I love it. Are, are there any rules, Tanya, for, I know there have been stated in the past, are there any legitimate rules for pairing food and wine? What should we look out for there? Or or should we be looking no. out for Yes and no. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, I suppose traditionally there have been what we call pairing rules, or I'd say they're customs. And there's good reason for that. And that's because food and wine certainly, they act well and interact well, or they don't, or they clash. So when we think about food and wine pairings, we're thinking about a couple of different things. It can be, how does the food affect the wine? Or how does the wine affect the food and your experience of it? And we might think of things in terms of contrasts um, or things that complement each other. So for example, you know, people will often say things like champagne and oysters or champagne and, or sparkling wine and fried foods you know, that high acidity in sparkling wine will cut through, you know, that the fried nature. So pairings in terms of one element cutting through the other, or, you know, big red wine, have it with a big red steak or a big thick grilled portobello mushroom if you're a vegetarian, for example, you know, that's dealing with proteins and salts. So yes, I think that there are some classic pairings for a reason. And that's to make sure that food and wine, they complement each other and not clash. Like, as you mentioned, Gewurz demeanor and Riesling, because of the off-dry nature of many of them, or for Gewurz demeanor and for many Rieslings, perfect. That great goes w- really well with spicy food. So if you have spicy food, Riesling and Gewurz demeanor are your go-tos because that sweetness will cut across the spice. So yes, I think that some of those traditional pairings that we talk about are for a reason. But having said that, I think, again, play around it because some of those pairings may be varied because of a sauce you pour on top of the piece of chicken or the fish that you're having. Yes. And that sauce yeah. can completely change how you taste the food or if it's gone from being a very light sautéed with lemon to a heavy-duty cream sauce. So that piece of halibut that you have grilled, and then all of a sudden you've got a piece of halibut with a nice big creamy sauce (laughs) on top, you may choose a different wine for that. So think of the sides and and what's being poured because that can affect it. You know, some of it's trial and error, I think. And also the other thing to keep in mind is wine will change with the food. So when you're wine tasting, some wines are fantastic on their own and don't need food. And some wines really will need food. You'll experience them differently. You'll enjoy them more with food. They need something to hold up. They need something to, to stand with. Yeah, or to, or to play against. At, or somehow. to play against, absolutely. So that's what I always mention to people too. When you're trying wine in isolation of food, sometimes it's it's not fair on your system. You know, that's why it's nice to pair with even cheese and charcuterie or, or crackers or something. So sorry, I know I haven't been very specific about your pairing, but so I guess the thing is, yes, no, classical no. pairings are there for a reason and why we talk about them. But be mindful, too, with changing cuisine and our approaches. Wines, pairings are going to be different. I think a lot about my friends who are vegan and vegetarian. And we think about what's going to happen with, you know, in the wine world with lots of wines that historically may have been produced or made to be part with food. And that's really how wine started to have with food. So changing trends or approaches in food, it'll be interesting to see how that affects styles of wine production. Oh, I think so. Yeah. And there seems to be so much more freedom now and so many more products available. So maybe people are going to be pairing more freely or willingly with 
who knows, with ciders or with, uh, you know, craft beers or with kombuchas, that kind of thing. I think so. But if you're not sure, if you're not sure how to pair, there are some go-tos. I think anything with a nice high acidity will generally pair well with food. So that's why rosé, it's typically pretty versatile. I'm not sure what you'll end up eating tonight. I'll let you know later what I have with my rosé. Okay, it probably yes. won't be really spicy, but it'll be, I'm not sure what I'm going to have. But things like also like Pinot Noir, you know, Pinot Noir is a light red. It's got low tannins. It's got high acidity. When you're looking to pair food, something with in a red, low tannins and high acidity, that's very food friendly. So Pinot Noir, I feel... As I, that'll be my go-to. That's pretty much one of my go-to ones generally because I can have it with salmon or I can have it with steak. <laughs> yes. So yeah. or lunch. Yeah. <laughs> so or lunch for that as matter. As an example, you know, again, we could go on with forever, but yeah. again, I think it's being mindful of how they, the food and wine interact, but playing with it and, and just going on the adventure as well. Okay. I think that's fantastic advice. One more piece of advice, and and let's cast our mind ahead weeks or hopefully not months, but but when the current circumstances have calmed down a little. Um, my original question here was, what's a perfect wine weekend or dinner party or or experience with friends? But but now what I'm going to add to that question is, what's the perfect wine experience to share with friends? the first time we can get back together again. <laughs> I think I'm sticking to what I would have done normally pre these times. <laughs> pre this time, yeah. Pre these times. And I really like, I mentioned earlier, brown bag tasting. Yeah. So either I bring all the wine and brown bag it, or we have a theme, I say to my friends, and the theme could be a budget, where you set a budget and you say, get whatever you bottle you like, but don't go over this amount. Or it could be a grape or two grapes we choose to explore, mm-hmm. or it could be a region. So however, within your group, or sometimes my friends just say, T, just can you decide and tell us? <laughs> um, <laughs> tell us what to bring. <laughs> I'm totally fine with it as well. Yeah. Uh, so you can totally cater that to the group. I really like brown bagging. So everyone will bring a, a wine in a brown bag. I'll get the bag or I will bring all the wines in a brown bag and I'll number them. And because I'll have visibility to what is in the, what's in the range, the flight, I will decide how we, like the order of experiencing those wines, depending if they're whites or reds or the what their styles are. And it's really to go through it in a bit of a flight, not not full glass pours, because let's say you'd have five or six wines, for example, four to six wines right. and small pours and do it over. It's like, it's a way to elevate or take your happy hour to a new level, you know, get some charcuterie or grazing board or snacks or appetizers or bites, things that will be food friendly, put them out, a Sanka set, you know, five to seven and get together with friends and and pour. And what I like to do is pour a wine and let people experience it. Either we go through all the wines and then at the end I reveal them or or one by one we go through them and reveal them and talk about where they're from. And I love it because everyone needs to park their preconceived notions at the door. They only know what they've brought if they've brought the wine. They don't know anything else. And it's a big equalizer. Equalizer. Sure. Yeah. No one really knows or thinks, oh, well, you know, oh, that's that wine. So I know I'm going to like that or, oh, I'm not going to like that. I can't tell you the number of times I poured a Chardonnay or Riesling and people didn't know. And they're like, oh, I don't drink Chardonnay. And I'm like, well, guess what? That wine you're loving right now is Chardonnay. <laughs> Chardonnay. <laughs> so, um, I love that. And I love it because there's that element of surprise and, and embracement. And like people are like, wow, I'm going to go buy Chardonnay next week. Yeah, and I love that. Right. It's fun. And it's equalizer too on the budget. I think uh, what I find is people will set a budget and getting back to your question about value, there's amazing value out there from many regions. And so people, you said maybe a budget that might be 
whatever your budget is. Maybe it's lower for lower than what the crowd might normally spend. And it's actually fun because you're like, wow, I need to, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to look at things that maybe I'm not normally buying, or maybe your budget, maybe the budget for the wine tasting is a little bit higher and you're looking a little bit higher. And so you're exploring a little bit different. I mean, whichever the budget itself doesn't matter, but it's that all the wines are in that band. So you're, you're kind of having an experience of like, in a sense, or maybe you're not. And that's what you find out. Right. 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 Yeah. It's all, it's all journey and education. I love it. So I know it sounds like yeah. it's really prescribed, but really when you're doing it, it's, it's really fun. And I find yeah. people really enjoy it. They really have a lot of fun. They learn a lot. And basically, ultimately, you're drinking wine and you're having a fun time and you're clinking glasses. And that's what matters. <laughs> totally. So that's probably what I'll be doing whenever, whenever we can do that again. <laughs> when, <laughs> that's right. Whenever Bonnie Henry says it's okay to get back to it. I know. I know. Oh. Fair enough. Well, listen, Tanya, where is best for my listeners to see what you are up to? Uh, right now, I would say on my Instagram, okay. TT Wine Explorer. And on my website has a little bit of a profile on me and a snippet and high level senses of the different types of excursions or wine experiences we can have together in very general terms. But I will be increasing the frequency of what I'm putting onto my site, as well as increasing um, newsletters and information coming out through that. So if anyone's interested in keeping up to date, if they want to subscribe on my website, that's great. But I'd say right now to Instagram, because I, I post things there, um, including article links to articles that I've been writing. And um, my, my, my journey, it's really my journey and some of the ones I've also been explore, exploring and what I've experience to that and what I enjoy. So to the extent people are want to jump on the journey with me, that's where they can find it. Wonderful. Well, listen, I will put links to those in the show notes for today's episode. And thank you so much for joining me. I've really enjoyed our talk and sharing this uh, glass of Rethink Pink with you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight. And I look forward to when we can get together in person and clink glasses again. <laughs> Here is to that. Cheers. Yes. Cheers. Thanks, Tanya, for a great talk and for sharing your love of wine and for sharing a glass of wine with me, virtual though it was. I'm really looking forward to clinking glasses in person, hopefully someday soon. And thank you for joining me. I really do appreciate you taking the time to be here with me for Cheftimony. Please remember, I love to hear from you as well. So if you've got a comment for the show or a question, perhaps a topic suggestion, or maybe you know a chef or a lawyer who might make a good guest, or maybe you are a chef or a lawyer who might make a good guest, please just get in touch. You can do that on social media. So you can message me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, or just send me that good old-fashioned email, Instagram at cheftimony.com. All right, that is all for today. Stay safe, follow the safety guidelines, please support independent restaurants if you can, and let's all be kind to each other. I'm Graham McLennan. I look forward to seeing you next Friday right here on Cheftimony.com.